Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. This is an RNZ podcast. The problem is that she was telling the truth in that she was abducted from her home and raped. It's incredibly, you can't get much more traumatic than that for a child. Hi, I'm Jesse Mulligan, host of the Daily Afternoons programme on RNZ. You're listening to Crimes NZ, a series where I talk with people who are connected in some way or other with serious crimes that have happened here in New Zealand. In this episode, we cover the wrongful rape conviction of David Doherty and the fight to free him with Donna Chisholm, a journalist who led the campaign. He was accused of abducting and raping his 11-year-old next-door neighbour. She was taken from her home, uh, bound with shoelaces, taken to the nearby bowling club and attacked. uh, And she named uh, David as her assailant. Okay, and and what was his situation at the time? Was he a known criminal? Yes, he had uh, a number of convictions for uh, things like burglaries, car conversions, check uh, frauds, but he had no uh, record for violence or sexual offending. So he was he was kind of um, prolific but low level, mm-hmm. and he was living at home with his partner Joanne and. Joanne's children at the time, and he was employed. Did he have an alibi at the time? Well, Joanne gave evidence at the trial that he was with her. Mm, <laughs> so, okay. yes. Yeah. And the little girl, did she ever change her mind on that? Um, I think that the, the problem is that she was telling the truth in that she was abducted from her home and raped. It's an incredibly... You can't get much more traumatic than that for a child. It was in the middle of the night. Um, there had been some bad blood between the neighbours in the month leading up to that. Uh, David and Joanne had moved in a month earlier. Uh, the complainant's brother had been bitten by David's dog. The family, the complainant's family had the dog put down. There was ongoing dispute and a police later police reinvestigation suggested that there was this degree of animus might have informed why she named right. David because he was the kind of bogeyman yeah. but she was telling the truth in every other respect yeah interestingly she she described the person who attacked her as clean shaven i think that's just one of those um well yes and and that actually spoke a lot to her truthfulness because she didn't resile from that. She could have said, she could have changed her testimony on that and say, well, look, I got it wrong. I, I remember now he had a moustache, which David did all his adult mm. life. So, you know, she stuck to her guns on that. Okay. But it was just an, an error. 
but nonetheless the police <coughs> decided they had their man? Well, she was a pretty credible, compelling witness. Yeah. He was a next-door neighbour. He had a record for burglary, which sometimes can be linked. Yeah. Um, in some ways, yes, they had they had their man and then everything else fell into place for them. But, no, they didn't go looking for any other... Uh, any other possibilities. And, of course, the fact that they didn't, four months after that, the person who actually did rape this child um, abducted two other children from their home in West Auckland, and then he was subsequently imprisoned for that. And, of course, in the time that it took to identify him, he went on to rape a, several other women. Oh, OK. Meanwhile, David Doherty is charged and goes to trial. What yep. happened in that first trial? Well, there was no DNA evidence, despite the fact that... Um, semen had been identified on the girl's underwear and pyjamas. Uh, DNA was in its infancy in 1993 when the trial was. I mean, the abduction was a year earlier, in 92. So, so basically at trial, you had a, a very credible child saying it was David and you had Joanne saying, no, he was with me. He was convicted. <laughs> jury, uh, <coughs> jury or just a judge? It was a jury. Yeah, okay. So what happens? He goes to jail. Yep. And presumably not a very pleasant place to be for a convicted child rapist. No, although he, when I talked to him over the years, he never said that he was um, attacked in any way. He, he, I think that probably other inmates believed him mm. when he protested his innocence. Um, so his father was... Um, very much uh, aware of new developments in DNA technology and he, as much as anyone, pushed for the stains on the girls' underwear to be retested using the new technology. And this happened the following... This happened in 1994 and there was a, an appeal hearing in November 94, which threw out his appeal because of the very equivocal... Uh, interpretation of that DNA, I'm being polite here, by the uh, ESR. <clears throat> Can you explain that to me? What do you mean? Well, there was... They did their tests, and I've actually got the, the, the chart here, and it showed very clear evidence of somebody else's DNA in that uh, semen stain on the underwear. Very unequivocal. There was somebody else. Mm. However, the scientist took it on herself to interpret signals that were below the control dot on that result as evidence that David could be there because that was his signal. She said that could be his signal. Right. Um, and there the whole scientific uh, debate erupted as to whether those very faint signals, which were below the control dot, at which should be the cut-off point for interpreting them as representing anything, uh, whether they represented something. So she went looking <coughs> for signs that could be used to support the earlier verdict and found some... Well, there, there was, it was regarded... This was very early days, and it was the independent scientists said that this was a cross-reaction in the test kit, and the control dot strength was designed to rule out things mm. like that. However, she ruled it in... Um, I think, out of a desire to support the status quo. Who was Ari Gerson? 
Well, Ari happened to be at the Court of Appeal that day on a different case with Murray Gibson, the lawyer. And when he saw the report in the Herald about the case, it reported something along the lines that the DNA evidence pointed both away from Doherty and towards him. And as a molecular biologist, Ari knew that that was a nonsense, and he urged Murray to have a look at it. Murray, they, Murray David's lawyer. Well, he wasn't David's lawyer then. OK. But he, he had worked... Ari right. and Murray had worked together on the first DNA case in New Zealand, which was the case of Michael Pengalley, who was the first person convicted of murder on DNA evidence pretty much alone in New Zealand, and that was in 1990. So they had been had a relationship, uh, you know, a working relationship, mm. uh, and Ari exhorted Murray to actually go and have a look at this, which he did. And is that about the time that you start getting interested? Well, I, a friend of mine who was also a lawyer tipped me off that Murray had a great DNA case, and, of course, to a journalist in those days... the DNA was catnip <laughs> mm. because it was new and it was exciting and it was um, involved uh, serious crime. <clears throat> so, but it took me, I, I rang Murray and he <laughs> essentially said, go away. Um, and for many, many months he told me to go away because what I didn't know but what they were doing at that time was casting around the world to try to get other scientists to uh, look at the, this test result. They were getting the files from the ESR and they were going around the world to find independent experts who would who would offer an opinion. And in the end they found two, one from California who actually had developed the very test kit that was used in this test and another, uh, Stephen Gutowski from Australia, the first one was Rebecca Reynolds, and together they gave reports to support what Ari's view was that this wasn't David and they had the wrong guy. Okay. So you were calling <coughs> up you were calling up to urge them to have another look at the DNA. Meanwhile they were doing that in the background. Well no, I was I was urging them to talk to me about this case because mm. I didn't know anything about it. Okay. But so when they finally got these reports, um, it might have been a bit before then it actually it was about mid ninety five that I got finally got to see them and talk to Ari and and then I had to sit on it and sit on it and sit on it until Murray wanted me to wait until he actually uh, petitioned the Governor-General to exercise the royal prerogative of mercy in David's case because that's, that was all that was basically left to him after the Court of Appeal had turned him down. Yeah, can you explain that to us? Because I don't think that's come up in this um, segment before, but the, does that still exist, that if oh, yes. you exhaust your legal channels, mm -hmm. you can go to the Governor-General and mm -hmm. say, hmm. Mm -hmm. It's quite a power for the Governor-General uh, in a role well, that doesn't have many... Proper powers. No, well, he, he, they got a, uh, they get a QC or a retired judge to look at the facts, yeah. or, or in fact their own lawyers at the Ministry of Justice, mm -hmm. and they make a recommendation to the Governor General. Okay. So, and that went, didn't go in until March, uh, nineteen ninety-six. Okay. And that's when we first published in the Sunday Star Times. And and what's your relationship to um, Gibson and the scientists at this point? They're talking to you now. <laughs> Taking your calls, not screaming. <laughs> I think they've forgiven me yeah. <laughs> for pestering them. But at that point, when you go to the Governor General, you're sort of part of a team, aren't you? Yeah, absolutely, because yeah. I'd been on board for months before that. I mean, you shouldn't get to be part of a team. And in fact, I thought that we'd do the story, everybody. And, and in the first story, I quoted the ESR as saying that he would be very concerned as a, as a member of the jury if uh, 
there was another person's semen on the on the rape complainant's mm. underwear, and he congratulated those who were raising it. So I thought this will all be over in five minutes. Everybody will f- say we got it wrong. Let's get this guy out of jail and sorry and on your way. Because um, Murray said, look, I'll I'll give you this first go at it, but then I'm opening it up to all the other media mm. to have a go. And then nobody wanted a bar of it. Nobody was really interested until he until we got him out. Because let's release this child rapist isn't like no. immediately what people no. the cause that people want to get behind. No, and Michael Forbes, who was the editor of the Sunday Star Times at that point, uh, the story didn't really sell, and he hammered it and hammered it and hammered it for, uh, you know, until until the retrial was ordered when we couldn't hammer it anymore. But it didn't sell, so he did it because it was the right thing to do. Good for him. It was called the Goliath Fight for David, and did you get much reader feedback? Well, it's a difficult... You got reader feedback in those days, not instantly. You know, they had to write a letter and post it. (laughs) Even now with email, it's very hard to get any sort of reader feedback, isn't it? No, I mean, there was... Yeah, and to a lot of people, it it was an unpopular fight. And and they, they sort of felt, well, if he didn't do this, he did something, so it doesn't really matter. Right. So was that first conviction quashed then? Um... Yes, it was quashed by the Court of Appeal in August uh, 1996. It's it was a big deal, eh? Yeah, yeah. I mean, yes, but it, was, it wasn't quashed and on your way. It was quashed and a retrial ordered. Okay. On the, on the basis that there were now three experts who were saying that this was wrong. Mm-hmm. And then a Melbourne scientist called Stephen Gutowski yep. does some further testing. He, he well, yes, he, he was one of our, the first experts, but then he did further testing and got a better profile. He, because in those days the technology was progressing apace and mm. it was becoming easier to be to get more detailed profiles. The the ones that the one we had in the in the first instance was simply an exclusion uh, profile. It didn't really go a long way to identifying who the real culprit is. Yeah. But Gutowski got a much better. Uh, Result because Ari had the uh, exhibits sent to him. But that was the first of many retests. I mean, the government <coughs> wanted another test as well okay. later on, way and, later. And even though, okay, so so even though this DNA evidence appears to be exonerating David Doherty, um, the Crown decides to go to trial again? Yes, indeed. A mystery to me. <laughs> yeah. Okay, and what happens? Well, they... they they argued, and I, I'll never forget the line from the Crown Prosecutor, that it's, he said it wasn't hard to imagine how this was ejaculate wiped from a surface. That was how he described the stain in the girl's underwear of the other man's semen. It was wiped, somehow wiped from a surface. I mean, I think in these days of trace DNA, you might have more, be able to argue uh, more comprehensively of how trace amounts might get there, but this was fresh, hadn't been through the wash, it was in the crotch of her underwear, it was on her pyjamas. But they still went ahead. And actually the jury was out for longer than at the first trial. <laughs> the jury was out for something like 10 hours. Were you there waiting? Oh, gosh. <laughs> yes. <laughs> yes. Hideous. It was hideous. And they came back and said what? They came back and said not guilty. And the place kind of erupted as politely as you can. In that situation. Yeah. So what happens then? In terms of the process? Yeah, so he is not convicted at the retrial. Right. 
So he, go, he goes but home and... Presumably he'd always spent a bit of time in prison. He, I think he was, he was sent back to prison the night before the verdict. I don't know why that was, but he mm. was. So he has to then go and start, start his life over as, as an acquitted man. But um, there was then... Well, if, if it wasn't him, who was it? So uh, the police um, reopened the investigation. Uh, they had a, an investigation into their investigation. Mm-hmm. Um, but Doug Graham was not going to offer any compensation. This is the Justice Minister at the yes, time. Yes, yes, indeed. So Murray uh, and Ari and I then worked on a on a request for an ex gratia payment for the three and a half years that he'd spent inside. And this was the first um, approach since Arthur Allen Thomas's payout um, many years before that. And that led to a new series of rules being established for how people would be compensated. What does ex gratia mean? It means, um, grat- it, like it's just doesn't mean anything legally. It's just a, a nice thing to do, okay. an ex gratia <laughs> thing to do. Yeah. And, and by the way, Doug Graham had rejected his bid because he said that his innocence hadn't been proven. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And, and that was another slap in the face for David, who was trying to, you know, live a life. <laughs> we haven't talked much about his personality. What sort of guy was he? I liked him a lot. Um, he was... I, I remember when I went to see him in jail uh, before we got him out, and, you know, when you approach people like this in these situations, you can either be impressed by somebody or you can think, well, this is going to be pushing it uphill mm. <laughs> because um, they're not a uh, character that people are going to warm to. Um, but he was very quietly spoken. He was articulate. He was well-read, uh, polite, to the point of just, you know, excruciatingly courteous um, and kind. Mm. Were he and Joanne still together? Yes, they yeah. were together till he died. Tough for her as well, eh? Yeah, hugely. To yeah. know, to, I mean, she knew that he was innocent, basically. Oh, absolutely, she knew. Yeah. And she stuck by him to, to her credit. Yeah. Um, and it must have been frustrating for him um, going through this new battle for compensation, but it eventually happened. It took too long to happen. Um, uh, Doug Graham said in '97 that he wasn't, you know, hadn't proven his innocence. 1998, Stuart Greve, the QC, was appointed to see whether he had proven his innocence on the balance of probabilities, which mm-hmm. was the test of whether he would be compensated or not. And that report um, took two years to complete, during which further tests on the DNA were done overseas. And uh, Stuart came back in 2001 and said that, yes, he had proven his innocence on the balance of probabilities. Okay. And and then he, he estimated how much compensation should be awarded. Well, how do you do that, by the way? Well, he took into account a kind of... I think he could had a daily rate of what, what this was, um, how much suffering this was, how much... He also took a bit off because David had spent time in jail for... Uh, a short time in jail for other offending. Um, his loss of earnings... I mean, it was a whole complicated um, formula that he ca- used and came to $868,000. Mm. Are the public starting to get interested in this, by the way? At well, they point? were. Yeah. <laughs> suddenly they were, because suddenly this was breaking new ground. Um, 
And then, of course, if, um, and I can't remember the year that the, the person was arrested, Nicholas Reiki was arrested. 2003. 2003, right. So that was, yeah, that was about a year after David was compensated. So that that was a whole other ball game because um, Nicholas Reiki had been on something of a raping spree um, despite the new profile having been having gone to the ESR. So there was a story that I did um, subsequently about how it was sitting there before, I think, two or three of his rapes. So, you know, he could have been stopped earlier. If they'd checked the, um, the sample from the earlier of the, case of the, the 11-year-old girl... Of, yeah. Of the retested DNA against a known serial rapist. Well, he he wasn't a known serial rapist at that point, but his um, they would have had DNA from the first crime scene of his his, his first one. Yeah. His first one, mm-hmm. but I I wonder if it's because it was retested. You know, it wasn't in a. I mean, the data bank. It might not have been in the data bank in the in the usual places. I don't know, but it was missed. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> So, and I imagine for you personally, when when this guy's caught, it must just be an extra sort of, um, uh, I suppose, vindicating moment. Yeah, it was, and and I think that um, I think it was the first time that somebody else had been in in wrongful um, conviction cases in New Zealand. I think it was the first time that the right guy had been got mm-hmm. <laughs> by the efforts of the people who got the first guy <laughs> right. exonerated. Because Arthur Allen Thomas, was well, there we, ever a... Well, well, there was nobody else convicted for the crew murders. No. So consequently, everybody still thinks it was him. No. I mean, now, of course, we've got uh, Tina Pora and Malcolm Raywell. Yeah. Um, by the way, there was a movie about this case. There was. <laughs> was it Cohen Holloway? Did Cohen Holloway play Cohen David? Cohen played David, yeah. yeah. He was fantastic. He he won the um, gong for that um, performance, which was amazing. It was called Until Proven Innocent. Did That's he, right. Did he get to see the movie? David? Oh, yeah. yes, he did. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, he... he and he, we went to the uh, pre- preview. It was a cast and crew, I think, preview in Wellington, and David sent a message uh, just telling Donna, Mullane and Paula Bock and Cohen and the, and the rest of the cast just how much it meant to him. So that was nice. What was life like for David then after all that? Probably went from bad to worse after that. I mean, he he had alcohol issues which were exacerbated uh, by his time in jail. I mean, he, he never... He was broken. He was a broken man, and, and you could not put him together. And he struggled with alcohol... And he died of, uh, I think it was effectively um, pancreatic cancer, or you know his pancreas was shot. Um, but I mean, I, th- I suppose at least he died with his name cleared, and that was hugely important to him. But he just drank himself to death. And that's a story that we've heard uh, in this slot before <clears throat> as well. And um, the Hollywood sort of story is. Innocent man gets released, hugs his wife, everything's great. Mm. But in fact, going through that is something yeah. that will change your life forever. In fact, I think his partner said that he was changed forever. He was, he was, and also, you know, we we stress to David that eight hundred and seventy thousand isn't actually a lot of money. <laughs> and for somebody like David, he, he never believed us about that. And we said, you know. We wanted to put it in a trust, but he gave it away, basically. He, he bought a home for himself and Joanne and Ashurst. They moved there. 
Um, and then he gave it away to his family. Mm. And he was a, a generous guy and he was left with nothing. And he, the last time I ever heard from him, he rang, because I, I was still supporting him, and I, he, he rang, I think it was about 2010, it was the last time I ever heard, and he said, could you put, pay for the bond on a flat? Because I think he'd had a brief separation from Joanne at that point. He said, could you put the bond, pay for the bond on my flat? And I'll never, I remember his words, he said, I'll never darken your door again. And I said, David, don't feel like that. But he just felt so guilty about always asking for help. Mm. And I never heard from him again. Is it one of the cases, uh, one of the stories of your career, this one? Oh, absolutely. You're never going to get too many people out of jail. <laughs> but, uh, yeah, and I had a lot of time for him. And tell me about his death or following his death. Well, I, I didn't know about it until um, somebody rang me and asked if I'd heard about it, and I hadn't. Um, I went round and visited his family as soon as I could, and there was a... The picture that we, gosh, <coughs> still chokes me up. There was a picture that we had used when David came out of jail of him turning up his face to the rain, and they had that with his ashes, and it was pretty, pretty heartbreaking. Yeah. Has anything changed that will stop this happening again? I think there is a greater emphasis on uh, independence in the ESR, and. Um, a greater realisation that scientists could, at that time, get too close to the police and regard themselves another, as another arm of the prosecution. Mm -hmm. So I think that's improved. Uh, there's still risks with forensic evidence. There's still risks with eyewitness identification. All those things are common in miscarriage of justice. You know, shonky forensic science, witness identification. Um, all, all those things still exist. Um, and who's to say another David couldn't happen again, but let's hope not. <laughs> You've been listening to Crimes NZ with me, Jesse Mulligan. You can find more episodes of the series on the RNZ podcast page or on Apple, on Spotify or wherever you catch your favourite podcasts. And if you like this series, you might also like the award-winning RNZ podcast series Gone Fishing. You can find it on the RNZ podcast page along with lots of other great podcasts.